Göteborg, Sweden, April 19th, 1992. At 1.46am, the emergency services receive a call from someone at a local restaurant where a famous singer had been performing. The police quickly learn that three shots have been fired, and the race was on for them to apprehend the shooter before he could strike again. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. In the evening of Saturday the 18th of April 1992, popular Finnish singer Frederick was performing at a restaurant in Göteborg, Sweden. Göteborg is one of Sweden's largest cities with a population of over 500,000 people as of 2019 with an estimated 5% of the population of Yotabori consisting of Finnish individuals. The singer performing that Saturday night, Frederick, was a very popular Finnish singer and musical artist in the 90s throughout numerous parts of Europe. Frederick, a stage name, had been born in 1945 and started making music in the late 60s, turning it into a successful career throughout his adult years until he started doing politics for some reason. On that Saturday night, Frederick had been performing at a restaurant called Timjan, which was a popular spot in the residential area of Lovgardet. The venue itself was actually a mix between a pizzeria and a small dance-slash-disco club, and that night the venue had decided to host a Finnish-speaking event to accommodate the largely Finnish crowd that Frederick had drawn in to watch him perform. This night was one of many Finnish-oriented nights that the restaurant held, with the venue holding Finnish-speaking events every Saturday night. Now, as a result of this, many of the 200 or so individuals in the audience were in fact Finnish, with many of them being Finnish Romani, colloquially known as Finnish Kale. Now, to be able to fully understand the context behind this case, we first have to explore who exactly the Finnish Kale are. The Finnish Romani, or Finnish Kale, are Romani people living primarily in Finland and Sweden. They, as with many other Romani populations, are typically stereotyped as being violent and stereotyped to be more likely to commit crime than other populations xenophobic stereotyping that greatly affects the community throughout its history and to the present day. The Finnish kale ended up in Finland due to various deportations that pushed them to move throughout Europe. In many places in 1637, Romani populations were terrorised by extreme xenophobia, with certain places making it legal to execute Romani people by hanging without a trial taking place first. Though this practice was discontinued in 1748, the damage to the Romani communities had already been done. Non-Romani populations began to see them through a lens, leading to further extreme acts of discrimination. The community of Romanis that would ultimately become the Finnish Kale were first deported from England and Scotland, originally known as English and Scottish Romani. This specific group settled in Sweden before once again being deported from there at some point in the 17th century. This deportation pushed them into Finland, which is where they remain. When Finland gained its independence in 1917, all Romani individuals became citizens of Finland, and they settled there, becoming the Finnish kale that exists today. Due to a long history of deportation, xenophobia, and genocide, Romani communities such as the Kale are very cautious about non-Romanis, a fair and understandable reaction if you ask me. 
These communities tend to look after their own in every way, as they have historically had to do so. This need for self-sufficiency has caused the Romanis to be stereotyped as aggressive, as they typically need to fend for themselves as individuals and communities against a historically hostile world. These stereotypes have caused non-Romanis to become more aggressive with Romanis, as they assume the worst without understanding Romani history. And these anti-Romani sentiments are so common that even official media tend to use anti-Romani slurs and rhetoric on a regular basis. Now, any slurs used in any quotes that we're going to be showing in this video have been replaced simply by square brackets with the word kale in it, because I don't feel comfortable with those slurs being on my channel, and it's just gross, absolutely gross. It's all throughout every piece of media that we we looked at even official documentation has these anti-romani slurs and rhetoric in them and ultimately all of this fed into the lack of coverage in this case which is something that we're going to discuss further on in this video now that particular saturday evening in april of 1992 had been just as regular as every other saturday night events that the restaurant had held before it the activities went on as intended until around midnight, going into Easter Sunday, the 19th of April, which was when a small fight broke out on the dance floor. Prior to this fight, a man named Carrie had been sitting at the bar getting a drink. Now, Carrie had been at the venue that night with his friends, two of which were his friend Ari Kalioniemi and Ari's partner Paivi. Carrie would later state that a kale man had been arguing with another man at the bar and had thrown a punch that had hit him, Carrie instead of the intended targets. Carrie quickly returned back to the table where his friends had been sat and told them what had happened. Carrie's friend Ari had been heavily drunk at that point and was extremely angry about what happened to Carrie, and so he told Carrie to go with him to find the guy who'd hit him. When they both went back out to the dance floor, Carrie would later state that he vividly remembered the man looking to the two of them and approaching them, saying, quote, Is it me you're looking for? Kari would further later state that the man, who he'd eventually identified to be a Mercy Swartz, swung and hit his friend Ari, knocking him to the ground. The fight quickly started to progress when security rushed in and broke them apart, kicking Mercy out of the venue. Following that, Kari and Ari returned to their table and stayed for a while, though after some time had passed, Kari noticed that both Ari and Ari's partner Paivi were no longer at the table. Carrie noted the times had been at around 1am at that point. When later questions, Ari and Paivi would both say that they had called a taxi and both returned straight back home. Paivi shared that Ari had gone down to the basement immediately upon getting home, and that she didn't see him again until the next morning when she woke up to go pick up their son from Ari's mother's house at about 11am that Easter Sunday. Ari also claims that he personally had little to no memory of what had happened after after the fight that night. But the authorities did know what happened next. They knew three shots had been fired, they knew people had died, they just didn't know who their shooter had been. Witnesses would tell investigators that at 1.25am on their Easter Sunday, a man in a large blue truck drove up to the taxi lane outside of the restaurant and slowed to a stop. Mercy was then seen approaching the vehicle, seemingly recognising the person who had been driving. Before Mercy could react, the barrel of a shotgun was aimed at his throat. One round was fired into his neck and face, resulting in a wound that ended up killing him within minutes. 
Mertzi was only 22 years old. Before people could react to the situation unfolding, the truck pulled further into the taxi lane and the driver fired two more shots. One of these shots hit a 23-year-old woman called Pia Susanna Sujoki in the head, causing her to collapse to the ground. Pia had attended the Finnish speaking event that night with some of her friends and had no direct connection to Ari, Carrie, or anyone else mentioned in this case. Pia was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. The third shot hit a 29-year-old man who we'll call John for the purposes of privacy in the stomach, which caused him to also collapse to the ground. Following the firing of this third shot, the driver of the blue truck sped off before he could be stopped, leaving onlookers to try to assist the two wounded people and call for help. Now, one of these onlookers had been at work in a nursing home located close to the venue. This onlooker was referred to as Cisco in court documents, so that's how we'll be referring to her. Cisco had heard the shots and had run to the window of the room she had been in just in time to see the blue truck pulling out of the taxi lane before taking a left on the road. Cisco would later give the police a rough sketch of the truck that she saw. The first call to emergency services came through at approximately 1.46am. It's unclear why the shooting and the first call to emergency services were so far apart, but those are the times provided by the court documents. The authorities responded, fortunately, right away. They arrived on scene quickly and paramedics immediately attended to Pierre and John. The paramedics rushed them into ambulances and straight to hospital. Mertzi was pronounced dead on the scene, and the investigation into his murder swiftly began. John would ultimately survive the ordeal after a substantial stay in the hospital with supportive treatments. However, tragically, Pia passed away in hospital after succumbing to her wounds at about 5am that morning. Ultimately, Pia's brain began to swell, and such swelling of the brain had been untreatable. Pierre was 23 years old at the time of her death. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Police cars arrived on the scene mere minutes after the first ambulance had arrived, though the formal investigators would not arrive on the scene until about 3am. The two primary investigators in this case listed on the court documents were Enoch Gutvassen and Jal Windet. It must be noted that the names of these detectives may not be entirely accurate due to mistranslation, mistranslations in the court documents, though we do believe them to be somewhat accurate. The two detectives noted in the CSI reports that the area around the restaurant had been dimly lit and that the weather had been very windy, causing some issues with evidence being blown from its original place before they were able to get there and catalogue it. A prime example of this was that two spent shotgun cartridges were found on the scene, However, they had been blown by the wind so that they were pushed up against the tyres of one of the police cars, obviously not in situ, aka original positioning. With this in mind, the detectives ran the investigation site to the best of their ability, taking notes of a jacket belonging to Pia that had also been blown away from it originally was, before bagging it for evidence. After doing what they could with the evidence at hand, the detectives turned their attention to the people who witnessed the entire event. The authorities interviewed the onlookers, including Cisco, who had been working at the nearby retirement home, 
and members of the restaurant's staff who were still there. One of those onlookers was a man called Ratty, who had been one of the security guards. He and his co-worker Marco, another guard, had directly handled the fights that had occurred that night involving Kari, Ari and Mercy on the dance floor. Ratty had been speaking with his manager when the fight had broken out on the dance floor and he had been the one to step in to break the two apart. Subsequently, Ratty explained that Mertzi and a few other Finnish Kale folk ended up being kicked out that night for inciting violence. It must be noted that due to the alcohol involved, a lot of the witness accounts and stories appear to get mixed up. For example, when John was later interviewed in the hospital, he claims that it was, quote, the Finn acting out and that he had been removed, the Finn being shorthand for a Finnish person. Though despite this account from John, we know that due to interviews with the security guards, that the Finn, who is presumed to be Ari, had not been kicked out that night. Regardless, John said in his interview on the 20th of April that, quote, it was a man who was not a kale who behaved badly and we told the caretaker that he should not be allowed in the restaurant because of his behavior and he was certainly thrown out. The caretaker in that quote, meaning the security guards. On the night in question, John claims to have arrived at the club at around 7 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. At the door, John spoke to the security guard Marco, who actually knew John personally, and due to the personal relationship between John and Marco, Marco would let John in for free, or so John claims. Following that, John and his friends partied and drank at the restaurant without issues until, quote, some girl showed up. Up until that point, John stated he had no recollection of any fights or other issues occurring. When John was asked about the people involved in the fights that did up end up breaking out on the dance floor at around midnight, John mentioned Mercy had been involved. After the fight had occurred and after the drama, John stated that everything became a blur until everyone decided it was time to go home. John said that he remembered leaving the restaurant and someone with him calling for two taxis. Further, he stated that there were no further fights he could remember happening outside the restaurant. John went on to explain what he remembered of the shooting. John said that he remembered seeing a double barrel aimed at his neck from the driver's window of the truck. He said that he believed that the barrel had been coming from behind the driver's head, alluding to the potential that there may have been multiple people in the car. This fact led the investigators to begin looking for two suspects. It's important to note that the autopsy reports of both Mercy and Pia were not well filled out by the medical examiner. There are various things that were either left blank or not filled in properly at all. Alongside this, the dating of and terms used within the documents made everything quite confusing, something we'll take a closer look at later on in this case. But before that, we have to take a look at the first person that the authority was suspected to be connected to the shooting. Initially, the police were set on the trail of a man referred simply to as Hansky. Now, I must say that there was not a lot of information about who exactly this Hansky person was, aside from the name provided for him and his retelling of the events of that night which he provided to the authorities. In fact, in our research, this Hansky character was mentioned exclusively in one book about the case, a book that I'll pop the title and author on the screen. I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, but go check out that book if you want to learn more. Now, Hansky was actually interrogated several times by the police officers, and importantly, his statements were cohesive and checked out when they were followed up on. Interestingly, Hansky had been the one to turn himself into the police to be interviewed due to the fact that he had heard some people in the Finnish Kale community had suspected him, and he had become worried for his own safety, believing that they might try to get revenge on him themselves. This is what Hansky told the police about what happened that night. Hansky had been at the restaurant with some friends, and his friends had actually been involved in the first fight that occurred at around midnight on the dance floor, whilst being heavily intoxicated. 
Hansky admitted to having started that fight, but he claimed to have not returned to the restaurant after being kicked out by the security. Before this could be confirmed by the authorities, Hansky was made the primary suspect, and the authorities had many aspects found during the investigation that made this to be a reasonable conclusion. Firstly, there had been some individuals from the Finnish Kale community who had felt that Hansky could have been the shooter. Of course, the investigators spoke with the a lot of members of the community. Many folk within the community had various connections to one another, and some felt that Hansky was violent enough to have decided to kill over a fight. Secondly, due to the fact that the Finnish Kale community in that area was so intertwined, Hansky had known some of the victims prior to the night of the shooting. Interviews with two Finnish Kale men resulted in information being shared with the authorities that connected many of the victims with Hansky. They'd been to parties and get-togethers in which Hansky, Mertzi, and John had also attended. Mertzi and John were already known to the police as well for various crimes, though none of them being violent. They did, though, question Hansky to determine if there had been some crime among the people they mutually knew that may have wanted or warranted revenge. Throughout the majority of the investigation, Hansky remains the primary suspect, though the police didn't yet have enough to charge Hansky with the shooting. They knew that the fight had happened on the dance floor, and they knew that that fight had to have been connected to the murders. The detectives turned their attention to the other people involved in the fight, particularly Ari Kalyanemi the man described as the Finn by John. Now, nowhere within the court documents was Ari's actual age mentioned. However, other aspects of his life were. At the time of the shooting itself, Ari had been living in Yotobori with a woman named Paivi, who he shared a young son with. He was a Finnish man and had family still living in Finland. Ari and his partner Paivi lived about 10 kilometers away from the Lovjardit area, which was where the restaurant was located, and they knew about the place and the Frederick event prior to attending. And so the authorities decided to bring Ari in for questioning, and when they did so, they learned he had no prior convictions or any other issues on his criminal record. As the detectives began to interrogate Ari about his memory of the events that unfolded the night of the shooting, he told them a very solid story, though as the interrogations progressed, cracks began to appear in the story he told them. These cracks soon turned into massive holes, with the detectives' focus suddenly closing in on Ari as the primary suspect. Now, due to these new suspicions, Hansky, the man they previously believed to have been responsible, was actually cleared of having involvement. It's also important to point out that the police also received some tips that Ari was somehow involved in the shooting itself. On the 20th of May, 1992, right after police had picked him up for questioning, Ari told his first version of the story. Ari stated that he and his partner Paivi had dropped their son off at his mother's home before going onto his friend Leo's house. Now, interestingly, Leo was actually the brother of Kari, who had been the man that would later be involved in the midnight fights on the dance floor. I know Kari and Ari have pretty similar names, so I'm just trying not to make this confusing. Now, Ari said they had arrived at Leo's home at around 6.30pm or so and were joined by between 10 to 14 other people and together they all started to drink. While at this house party, Ari claimed to have recalled drinking four or five regular beers, two or three strong beers and having a shot of vodka. The group eventually left the house party, which was essentially just a pre-drinks for that night's event, and headed to the restaurant Timyam where Frederick was playing arriving between 9.30pm and 10pm. Ari told investigators that he spent most of his time that night at the group's table up until midnight, 
Aside from going to the bathroom, getting drinks at the bar, and dancing with his partner Hyvi on the dance floor twice, he admitted that while at the restaurant he'd drunk more beers and hard liquor, and that he had had some gaps in his memory even before midnight. Importantly, Ari did talk about the midnight fight on the dance floor. He said that his friend Carrie approached him and said that he'd been, quote, hit by a kale. Now, of course, I've replaced what he actually did say uh, with kale due to it being very xenophobic. Carrie told Ari that he was confused as to why he was hit. Ari went on to state that he remembered going to the dance floor with Carrie to find the guy who'd hit him and that he only barely remembers the fight. Ari remembers putting his arm on a Finnish kale man and then being hit over his mouth and left eye. He goes on to claim that he remembered a security guard and his brother who'd been with them breaking up the fights before going back to the table with his friends. The next thing he remembered was getting in a taxi, then being at home in his basement and finally waking up on the sofa at around 6am to 7am the following Easter Sunday morning. Ari told detectives that he hadn't actually heard about the shooting until later that day from one of his friends. Though, the more the investigators pressed him, the more times he was asked to go back through his story, the more he began to break down in the interrogation room before finally telling the police about the parts of the story that he left out. Ari started the story again, but this time from when he went down to the basement when he'd returned home. He told the investigators that when he had returned home that night, he'd still been angry and embarrassed about what had happened during the fight on the dance floor. Ari went on to explain that he remembered grabbing and loading a shotgun before heading back upstairs. Ari then got into his blue truck and started driving. As he drove out of the garage and back towards Timyan, which was the restaurant, he stated to the authorities that he vividly recalled thinking to himself, quote, What am I doing here? At that point, Ari was still very intoxicated and angry, and it seems to the authorities that he had been in the mindset for wanting to settle the score. He then went on to describe how he pulled up next to the curb outside of Timian because he had seen Mertzi outside and recognized him. When Mertzi approached the car and was close enough, Ira revealed that he remembered grabbing the shotgun, aiming it towards Mercy's head and neck, and then firing. The detectives questioned Ari as to why Mercy had approached the vehicle, and Ari told them that he didn't recall speaking to him at all, and that, quote, I suppose he was coming towards me, or he was standing still. When I pulled up, and that when I got to see the kale, something broke. It was probably anger, but I don't know. If I hadn't been able to see him, I would have gone home. I shot him, probably in anger of being hit, I have never been like that before and have never hit anyone either. Those remarks were direct admissions that not only did he kill Mercy, but also that the fights that he had lost with Mercy was a major factor as to why he had decided to leave the house armed in the early hours of that morning. This, however, only explained his reasoning for part of the story. The investigators were baffled as to why he then decided to fire two more shots at strangers before leaving. When they asked Ari, he told them that he wasn't sure why he did it. He said he didn't recall recognizing anyone or thinking anything specific before doing it. Eventually, he just said that it, quote, might have been an old habit to keep on shooting the gun. What exactly he meant by that is very much unclear, as there's no further elaboration on what history Ari had with firearms. Based on an investigative search of his home, it appeared that he may have had a habit of hunting or something similar. When the basement and subsequent gun safe were searched by investigators, several weapons and weapon accessories were confiscated. Among these were two shotguns, one Winchester brand and one Baikal brand, a Webley brand air rifle, a harpoon gun, a mini harpoon gun, and a crossbow that was in pieces. Also found were several gun cases, some with scopes or cleaning supplies in them, as well as various types of ammunition and gun maintenance tool. 
Now, to understand this a little bit more, I asked my producer, Jinx, who is from Texas and has experience with firearms, to give his opinion on this. So I grew up in an area of Texas where hunting was very, very common, and I've been hunting a few times myself. The guns found on Ari's property would make a lot more sense for somebody who was using these guns to hunt rather than to just shoot recreationally at, say, a shooting range. For example, a harpoon gun isn't something you would typically just take out to go show to your friends. That's typically something you would use in hunting or fishing or some sort of activity where you're trying to take out an animal of some sort. Same with the shotguns. While people do take shotguns to recreationally shoot every now and then, that's more of a hunting weapon. It's more of a tool than it is something that'd be cool to show off to your gun buddies. And again, with the crossbow, though some people do have this because they think it's like a cool weapon to have, it doesn't really make sense, and most shooting ranges probably wouldn't allow you to take this type of weapon in. Granted, I've never visited this country before, so I don't know their laws and regulations about that. However, I just know that a lot of places, at least in the area of Texas that I grew up in, really wouldn't let you bring something like that in. In regards to Ari shooting the two other people at the end and then claiming it was a habit, to me that comes across, again, kind of like a hunting thing. So typically people who use shotguns wouldn't be shooting deer or something like that. While you can use them for that, it's a bit more common to use shotguns in bird hunting. So with bird hunting, typically birds will fly in groups, as I'm sure everybody watching this has seen happen before. And so in order to optimize uh, your hunting with birds, you want to get several shots into one single group of birds. And so it's common for people bird hunting to shoot, again, multiple times. When he said that, that's the only thing I could think of was a bird hunter who would double, triple tap, shooting at the same um, group of birds to try to kill as many as possible for the hunt. Be sure to go and subscribe to Jinx's YouTube channel, by the way. You can find a link in the pinned comments or in the video description down below. Now, Ari stated that after shooting the two extra shots that he hadn't been sure if there were more cartridges in the gun, but said that there, quote, probably were but that he chose to leave and go home instead. Once he had got back home, he claimed to put the gun away before going to sleep on the sofa in the living room. Ari confirms that he awoke twice, once at 6 to 7 a.m., and again at around 11 a.m., which is when his partner, Pivey, left to go get their son from his mother's house. Now, naturally, the authorities were eager to find out whether Ari's partner, Pivey, had known anything about what happened that night, so they asked Ari about her. He told them that he told her once he'd come back home after the shootings what he'd done. You see, she had heard Ari putting the guns back away in the basement, and so she came downstairs to ask where he'd been. It had been then that he had confessed to her that he'd shot people outside of the Tim Yan restaurant. Ari maintains that he thought his partner wouldn't believe him, but eventually she did, and together they both agreed to continue their lives like normal, trying to keep their son's life as normal as possible. The couple then went back up to bed and pretended that the news of the shooting was shocking to them. The authorities questioned Ari as to why he hadn't come forward earlier, and Ari claims that he was scared and wanted to delay the inevitable. Ari had grandparents living in Finland at that time and had made plans to visit them in the summer. Due to his grandparents' age and the length of the sentence he'd thought he'd get for the crime, Ari felt that this summer would be his last chance to ever see them again and was hoping to hold off being caught by anyone until after seeing them one last time. A courtesy he did not allow the friends and families of his victims to have. No empathy for the fact they'd never see their loved ones again. 
completely selfish. Another point that Ari mentioned was that he was afraid of the Finnish Kale community, figuring out that he had been the shooter before the police, telling the detectives, quote, you yourself know how it is with the Romani slur and their revenge. It's important to note that there was no record or information about the trial within court documents or elsewhere online, likely due to there being a guilty plea and subsequent sentencing hearing rather than a trial, though those court documents did include dates and information about the hearings and other sources detailed information about the sentencing and subsequent appeal. Outlined in the court documents and subsequently entered into discovery during the hearing process were the CSI reports, the autopsy and toxicology reports for Mercy and Pia, the medical reports of John's injuries and treatments, and transcripts of the interviews and interrogations of Ari, John, Carrie, Pivey, and other key witnesses. Now, although Ari had already confessed, the authorities hadn't told Carrie that Ari was the shooter prior to interviewing him on the stand during one of the first hearings. The prosecutor wanted to find further witness testimony that supported Ari's confession, so they asked Carrie to go through the events of that night again. Carrie told them that everyone had been drunk, but, quote, not so drunk that they couldn't take care of themselves. When the prosecutor described Mercy to Carrie, he said that Mercy had been the man that had hit him at the bar. It's notable that the language used to describe Mercy from both the authorities and from Carrie included anti-Romani sentiments, as Mercy was described as, quote, black-haired, back-combed hair, as Kale usually have. Not only was a slur used, being replaced by Kale in that quote, a stereotype of Finnish Kel people was also used. The testimony continued with Carrie providing the details that we discussed earlier on about their drinking, with the only uncertainty being the times that events occurred, which is understandable due to the amount of alcohol consumed that night. Carrie also told the cause that he remembered Ari speaking to the security guards after the midnight fight. Ari said to the security guards, according to Carrie, quote, it's weird how you get beaten up when you're innocent. Carrie remembered Ari being angry, but remembered no other issues before Ari and his partner Pivey left the restaurant. When the prosecutor revealed to Carrie that Ari had confessed to being the shooter, Carrie was shocked. He told them that he'd never had guessed that Ari was capable of doing such a thing, and was devastated to know that his friend had killed people. In the hearing in which Ari's partner Pivey took the stand to give testimony, she mentioned that once she and Ari had returned home from the Tim Young restaurant, that she didn't see him again until he came home at the second time after the shooting had taken place. She told the court that she had heard Ari come home and go to the basement, and that she'd been confused as to why he'd been outside. Pivey explains that when Ari first told her that he'd shot people, that she didn't believe leave him. It was only after Ari continued to tell her about what he'd done that she realised he was being serious. She went on to state that it hadn't been until the news about the shooting broke that Easter Sunday that it really hit her that he'd done it. And at that point, she was worried about their son and just wanted it to go away and so kept quiet. Cisco, who had been an onlooker that had worked at the nearby nursing home, had witnessed the shooting, took the stand during the hearings, as did Ratty, who was one of the security guards. There were a total of seven hearings in this case, starting Wednesday the 20th of May 1992, up until Tuesday the 9th of June 1992. I believe the final hearing on the 9th of June was actually the sentencing hearing, but I'm not 100% certain. What I do know for certain, though, is that Ari was sentenced to life in prison for two charges of murder, one charge of attempted murder, and one charge of aggravated drunk driving. Absurdly, Ari was horrified at the sentencing that he'd received, 
and he felt that given he'd provided a full confession and handed himself in, that the life sentence was far too extreme. It appeared that Ari had hoped that somehow the fact that he'd been heavily intoxicated that night might have taken the burden of some of the guilt off of his shoulders and lower his sentence. Ari appealed his sentencing in December of 1992, the court rightfully upheld the original life sentence, offering justice to the victims and their families. Unfortunately, there are few details regarding the aftermath of this case available. Whether that was an account of the language barrier or simply a general lack of information about the case, I can't say for certain. There is some discussion regarding this lack of information, and from this discussion has stemmed a handful of theories. Some theories mention the fact that many of the individuals involved being non-Swedish nationals could have contributed to the lack of coverage, while others cite that there may have been other more, quote, newsworthy events occurring at the same time causing the shooting to fall to the sidelines in the eyes of the local media. Those shootings and other violent crimes were not uncommon at the time that this case took place in Sweden. It seems strange that so, so few places actually covered the crime. Very few newspapers that we could find were on any stories relating to the case, and the ones that did only briefly mentioned it. It was never a major story. The theory that there had been bigger world or national events happening at the time has a fatal flaw. There were no major events happening at the time. Many media outlets covered a failed Apple v Microsoft court case and the opening of Disneyland Paris during the period of the shooting. And while those events aren't noteworthy, it's strange to think they could have replaced a local story involving a double homicide and attempted murder. There were seemingly no major events or issues occurring in Sweden at that time either, which makes that theory even weaker. A more solid theory is that it has to do with non-Swedish individuals, and more importantly, the fact that Romani Kale were involved and had been shot. This fact that it had, quote, only been the Kale, was something mentioned frequently in the interview with Ari, in which he'd been pretty, basically, blatantly xenophobic about the Finnish Kale in general. Tragically, I believe that this case being largely ignored by local and mainstream media was a result of the fact that rampant xenophobia plagued Sweden at the time, and arguably still to this day. The media simply believed that the public just wouldn't have cared. Nationalism was still a major mainstream issue in Sweden at the time of this case. At the beginning of 1992, one of the major newspapers in the country was being run by a fascist nationalist party. It's clear to see how a story about non-Swede deaths, and particularly deaths of Finnish kale, wasn't considered important enough to be news. Discussions on Reddit detail of how this was viewed as a drunken fight that escalated, and that if the victims had been Swedish nationals, then it would have received better attention. Again, the general public attitude and stereotyping towards Finnish Kale people at the time had been that they were a violent community. The language used not just in the official court documents, but also in what little news coverage the shooting did receive. Utilizing anti-Romani slurs in these official publications just goes to show the attitude at that time. This xenophobic viewpoint being present caused the case to become uninteresting news. And what I find most heartbreaking about this is that it was so difficult to learn about who Mercy Swartz and Pierce Yoki were. Two people, 22-year-old Mercy Swartz and 23-year-old Pierce Yoki. Two families lost their loved ones to a senseless and evil attack, and they were swiftly reminded by the community they lived in that due to their heritage and label, that they were not as valuable to society. They were forgotten by their local community, their memory fading away. But I refuse to let them be forgotten. It doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, nobody deserves to get murdered, especially over a fight on a dance floor. 
or for simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This case is truly one that really upsets me and I'm glad that justice was served and that Ari is behind bars for the rest of his life. And that's everything that I have for you in today's video. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and click that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a new true crime video, which is every Sunday. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. And with all that being said, I will see you in the next case. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.